Turn in your Bibles to Mark chapter 12, beginning in verse 28. And as you're finding your place in God's Word this morning, I want to start with an explanation. We're going to begin starting a new series, and you've probably seen it maybe on Facebook or on the screens behind us or on the front of your bulletin, titled, We Love Our City. And that, that phrase should be familiar because they're on the shirts we've been wearing for several months now. And... And so we're going to take some time over the next four weeks and kind of examine why that is, what that means, and it's still going to be from individual text, it'll still be expositional, but it's, we're going to be looking at answers to these questions. And as we've been wearing these shirts, I'm praying that it's more than just a shirt or a saying on our back. I mean, there's lots of things that we could put on a shirt and not mean, right? I, I could... I could I could write on a shirt, I'm a millionaire, but that doesn't make me a millionaire, right? So as we're doing this, I pray that this is a time of examination to decide whether or not we truly mean that. And as we've been wearing those shirts, the question that I get from most individuals is, why? You say we, you love, we love our city, why? Why do we love our city? It's a natural question, right? If you love the city, then, then why do you do that? Before we consider what I believe God's reasoning would be for us, I'd like us to consider some um, inappropriate answers to that question. One of the many reasons that I may hear people say we love our city is because of a familial bond or a familiar people. We love our city. Why? Well, because we that's where our family's at. We love our city because that's the people I grew up with. And those are, those are great things. When we grow up in a place and we live in a place for a while, we can begin to love the city because of the people. We can begin to love the city because it's familiar. So you might be saying, well, why is that an insufficient reason? Well, because as many of us can testify, family and friends often let us down. So if our only reason for loving this city is because we have family and friends here, what happens when we become bitter towards those family and friends because they've sinned against us? Or because the familiarness isn't, doesn't outweigh the problems that they cause? It's insufficient for the kind of love that's required of the church for the city. Another reason might be its unique setting. Kabul is a great little town. We have beautiful old buildings, one of which is the one we are worshiping in this morning. It's relatively quiet. It's gorgeous rolling hills and trees. And, and, and just to prove my point, I began asking some um, individuals and kind of an infor informal survey about the new residents in the last 10 years. And, and this year has the, uh, this is informal, but has, we've had more people moved into this community that are not part of this community and this year than we have in the last 10 years. And so I asked, well, what are the reasons for them moving into this community? And many of them, it's because of the unique setting of this city. It's because uh, it's, it's quieter, it's slower, there's beautiful buildings, it's because of all the things that I've already mentioned. 
They love the city. We have people moving from all over the states into our city because it is a beautiful place. So you might say, well, why isn't that a sufficient enough reason to love our city? Well, what happens when the buildings and homes we love fall apart? What happens when those buildings that we love so much decline to the point that it's not really worth fixing them anymore? Then do we still love our city? Do we still love it in this unique setting? What happens if we... um, I don't know, I'll throw something strange out there. What happens if we're overtaken by drug lords? Are we still going to love our city or are we going to run away because it's not quiet? It's not the kind of place that we lived in before. It's not a sufficient enough reason for a lasting love for the city. I think for many people, a reason they might love the city is because they have some romantic notion about it. They believe that it's a smaller town, so things will slow down. That's a lie. They believe that it's a, it's, a, it's a smaller town, so things will be simpler and easier. That's a lie. They, they believe that when tragedy strikes, they will be protected from that because they live here and not in Ferguson. That's a lie. The, just because... It may have many wonderful things doesn't mean it's going to be a sufficient enough love for this city. So, so when we consider all these things, you may be saying, okay, you've mentioned lots of good things, but you're also telling us this is insufficient. Should we all move somewhere else? And my, question, or my answer is no, that's not the solution. That would not be the solution, in my opinion, and, and according to God's word for those in Ferguson either. Just up and move somewhere else. That's going to be the solution to the problem. No, if we are going to have a lasting love, a true love for the city, it must be deeper than familiar people and unique settings and romantic ideas. It must be rooted in our love for God and His desire for our city. So I pray that this narrative helps us to love our city better. Hopefully by now you have turned in your Bible to Mark chapter 12, beginning in verse 28. And I'm going to read this story. This is a familiar story. It's familiar because this story is in three of the accounted Gospels. However, each one has its own unique descriptions, and Mark's is probably the most thorough in his response, so we're going to look at it today. Mark chapter 12, beginning in verse 28, and it says, And one of the scribes came up and heard them disputing with one another, and seeing that he, that is Jesus, answered them well, asked him, What commandment is the most important of all? Jesus answered, The most important is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. The second is this. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. And the scribe said to him, You are right, teacher. You have truly said that he is the one, and there is no other beside him. And to love him with all the heart, and with all the understanding, and with all the strength, and to love one's neighbor as ourself is much more than 
all whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. And when Jesus saw that he answered wisely, he said to them, him, you are not far from the kingdom of God. And after that, no one dared to ask him any more questions. As we look at this passage, we have to realize that a different question is being asked. He's not asking why do we love our city. He's asking a different question. However, this question that he asks sparks a conversation that is deeply rooted in the kind of thing that we're trying to answer today. Now, this scribe and this, and this question, if we were to look at Matthew, is found in a context of which they're testing Jesus. They're asking him a series of what will be three questions, and then Jesus is going to return and ask them a question. And in this series of questions, they are trying to trap Jesus. They're trying to catch him. Have you ever been around those people, right, that they're waiting to catch a Christian falling? They're just waiting to point. See, you're not living it either. That's what they're trying to catch. They're trying to catch him in a trap so that they can remember. They they have already despised by this point to put him to death. And so they're trying to find a reason. One of those questions is, should we pay taxes? And Jesus shocks them with his answer. Whose picture is on the coin? Yeah, pay to Caesar what's Caesar's and pay to God what is his. The next question is, has to do with divorce because Jesus has a particular understanding of this and, and, and they're trying to trap him in his understanding of what will the resurrection and the end times look like. And upon hearing that, this scribe sees that he answers it well. He sees that he, he answers it well and he, he seeks to ask his own question. Now, in Matthew, it describes the story differently. And I don't think they're, they're contradicting one another. I think they're just giving us a, a fuller picture. In the, in the account of Matthew, there's a bunch of Pharisees, studier, students of the law, that have come together because he's trapped this... He, he's already um, put down the Sadducees, so now he, these Pharisees, this other group that hates him, think, well, they can do it. And so they send out one man who is in our story, this scribe or this lawyer, and they send him out to dispute with Jesus. However, Mark portrays this man slightly different. Notice how Mark portrays him. He portrays him as a man who is enamored by Jesus, a man who respects Jesus, a man who, when he hears Jesus, thinks he may know what he's talking about. He answered it well. So let me pose this other question. Now, I don't know that the group necessarily wanted to hear Jesus' answer, but I do believe that this scribe wanted to hear a genuine answer from Christ. He wanted an answer, and Jesus certainly treats this man's question with sincerity. So why is this question important? Why would his question be important as our question? Well, his question is important because as a student of the law, he had to memorize 618 laws. Anybody here ready to take on that task for this next year, right? He had to memorize these laws, and he, he studied them backwards and forwards, some negative, some positive, and that would have been an overwhelming task for anybody, right? That would have been overwhelming for us to study these laws. 
And so this man, a student of the law, a scribe by trade, he asked Jesus to summarize all of these laws into one. Summarize, condense all of these laws down to one thing that I can keep in mind so that I don't miss something, so that I don't overlook something. Now, see, the Pharisees as a whole wanted to trap Jesus here because they wanted him to exclude a law in order to say one was higher than another. But Jesus doesn't do that. This, this question here is important because Jesus has already alluded to it several times in his ministry. In Matthew five nineteen, it says, Therefore, who act, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments... Wait a minute. One of the least of these commandments? That means there's greater commandments and lesser commandments, right? There, there's things that are weightier and things that are not. Now, Jesus says we should do all of them. That's what his context says here. There, therefore, whoever releases, relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of God. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in heaven. The question is, what is the weightier matters of the law? What, what is the, the weightier things of God's law? Maybe there are some of you, maybe you're, you're not like me, but in our house, we have unwritten rules, right? Does anybody else in here have unwritten rules in their house? Okay, the rest of you are lying, because I know none of you have written out all the rules in your house. All right, so you, you can confess at the end, repent, we'll have an altar call, you're, you're good to go. All right, so we have these unwritten rules in our families, and we expect our children to follow them, right? Maybe even our husbands and wives to follow them, right? You have certain unwritten rules. Like, I don't know, every time you touch the counter, it should be wiped clean. I, what, what, I don't know what the unwritten rules might be. But we have these unwritten rules, and it becomes daunting for our families to remember them all. I, I, I realize as a parent, sometimes maybe I just need to condense these for, for them and give them some... I, I realize as a parent, I'm not helping them because I'm not... I'm overwhelming them with these laws. I'm overwhelming them with these rules. It can become daunting to remember all the rules. Children may forget them, or they may just want to pretend they forget them. But the one overarching rule that should always be followed is children obey your father and mother as unto the Lord, right? That's the overarching, you know, that's how at least Paul summarizes it, and I'm going to go with him. And so he, he summarizes it into this one overarching principle. Well, Jesus here condemns the Pharisees in Matthew 23 because they didn't have an understanding of the overarching rule of God. They were following all the little um, less weightier matters of the law, but at the neglect of the things that mattered most. That's why Jesus in Matthew 23, 23 says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you tithe mint and dill and cumin. Anybody in here tithe from their spice rack this week? No one? Ushers, did we have any dill in the, in the, no, right? We didn't have any tomatoes from the garden this week. We didn't tithe those, but these guys took it so seriously that down to the, to the spices, they're tithing. I mean, these are the kind of guys that you want to nominate as deacons, right? I mean, these are top-notch guys here, 
But Jesus is condemning them because they do all of these things, but it says, and they have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. They had neglected the weightier matters of the law because they were so tied up in the details. Many of us in churches, we can become so tied up in the, in the do's and don'ts of tradition or the, the do's and don'ts of even, even God's righteous law and his word of, of how we should behave that sometimes we forget the weightier matters. Sometimes we neglect the weightier matters. Now, he, I believe what Jesus says here is a good caution. The weightier matters we ought to have done without neglecting the others. But what are the weightier matters that we are neglecting in our churches in order to serve our pet peeves, in order to serve those laws that we have highlighted in our Bibles? What are the things that we are, we are forgetting? We ought to be careful that we pay attention to the weightier questions. For me, this morning, I believe one of these weightier questions, because of Jesus' answer, one of the weightier questions this morning is, why do we love our city? Maybe, do we love our city? Do we genuinely love the people around us? The answer to our question and the scribe's question is remarkably similar. As we seek to understand the heart of God and his law, we find a profound principle for our lives in this city. Consider Jesus' answer. The most important is, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. The second is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. Now, this would not have been surprising for this scribe to hear this. Because that first verse, that up to the point of uh, the, the first principle, the most important, Hear, O Israel, down to with all your strength. That section, it's what's called the Shema. And it is probably the most well-known verse in the Old Testament for a Jew. It's so well-known because even today, it's so well-known that even today, most Jewish synagogues, most um, conservative Jewish synagogues, still recite this passage at the beginning of all of their services. This is the thing that drives them. This is a, a statement of who they are, and it's found originally in Deuteronomy 6, 4 through 5. And in that passage, Moses is telling the people of Israel what they are to do. He's giving them a summary kind of of what he's going to say throughout Deuteronomy. It's kind of a precursor, if you will. And he quotes this passage. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. And this was so important to the Jewish believers that Moses goes on to write this. And these words, those words that Jesus quotes, these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children. You shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. Now, what, 
Now, what Moses is doing there is saying, here and here and everywhere in between. When you're sitting down or standing up and everywhere in between, you should talk about this law. When you lay down at night and when you rise up in the morning and everywhere in between, you should talk about this law. You shall bind them as signs on your heads. Put a little map right here. It's a sign, right? They shall be on the frontlets of your eyes. You shall write them on the doorpost of your house and on your gates. How important were these words to the Jews? Very, right? They were very important. He should not be shocked. Needless to say, he would have been very familiar with this. But Jesus is quoting something for them that I think is important for us as well. This phrase, in the first commandment, so to speak, I believe they're one, but in the first commandment, the phrase begins with an affirmation of God's character as one, as undivided. We have one God, and if we have a God that has such a character, then we should have undivided affection for him. We don't have to, you know, the Greeks who had all these various gods, they could only serve one at a time, right? So, so they would have to go to this one and serve him for a little while, and this one and serve him for a little while, and this one and serve him for a little while. But the Jews, they had something unique to their setting. They believed in one God, and they were going to serve that one God alone. Therefore, their hearts should not be divided. They should not have to serve, you know, at various times and places, but they should serve him wholeheartedly, and for that matter, whole personedly. That's why he gives these 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 characters, and I don't think we should make too much of them, um, or at least the authors and their accounts don't, because they all record them slightly differently. But the point is, is that it's the whole being to love him with all their heart, with all their soul, and with all their mind, and with all their strength. Is there anything left? Everything that we are, we should love God out of. That is the first and primary rule or principle for God's law. Our response must be to love, and that must be included in every aspect of our being. It would not have surprised the lawyer that Christ referred to this. However, what Christ says next may have been a shock. Christ was not merely... They asked for one law. And in my opinion, Christ gives them one law in two parts. Love the Lord our God and love your neighbor as yourself. Those are not separate entities. Those are not pick and choose. Those go together. The second is likened unto it, Matthew says. Love your neighbor as yourself. Love those around you. Loving those around you is deeply tied to loving God. How are we to love those around us if we don't understand God's love for us? If we understand God's love for us, how can we not love others in that way? The pairing of the love of God and the love of others is vital. So much so that James says, concerning our tongue, he says, with our tongue, we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse people who are made in his likeness. It would be inconsistent to say that you love God, but not those who bear his image. It would be inconsistent to say, we love God, we love God, the church, which is God's bride, but we don't love those around it. That doesn't go together in Scripture. God is never satisfied with that message. 
Thus, we cannot say we love God and neglect those around us, and we cannot say we love those around us and neglect the person who they reflect. Jesus then states, there is no other commandment greater than these. Thus, he's stating the significance of these two laws standing at the top level of weighty commands. There's nothing above it. These stand at the top, and everything else comes through these. Matthew gives a slightly different account. He says, on these two commandments depend all the law and prophets, all that is required in the Old Testament. The emphasis on these two commandments, humanly speaking, is unique to Christ, yet God has seen these two standing side by side through the centuries. Now, I I, I should have probably put this up for you all to see it, but maybe you can imagine it with me. How, How familiar are you with the Ten Commandments, right? Maybe you've got Charleston Heston in mind all of a sudden, right? And he's holding up these two tablets, right? Two tablets of the law. We see that in the Old Testament. And when we understand the two tablets of the law, theologians speak about those in two ways. One tablet refers to the love of God. Bear with me here. You shall love no other God before me. You shall not make an idol. You shall not take the Lord's name in vain. You shall, not keep, the, or you shall keep the Sabbath holy right? These all have to do with the love of God. On this other tablet, we have the love of neighbor. You shall honor your father and mother. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness. You shall not covet. Even from the time of Moses, God considered these two categories of horizontal love towards God and vertical love towards others. These are the two tablets of the law, and under these two commands, everything else finds its place. As a church, it is easy for us to say, we love our God, we sing praises to our God, but where do we find our love for our city? It must be found in the love of God. Are you trying to love God without loving those around you? Maybe you're trying to love the city for all the wrong reasons not recognizing the glory that they are meant to reflect. As you look at this, you may feel overwhelmed. So let's consider the response of the scribe. After Jesus answered his question, we have a response that's unique only to the book of Mark. And it says, And the scribe said to him, You are right, teacher. Notice his his qualifications of who who Christ was. You are right, teacher. You have truly said that he is one and there is no one beside him. And to love him with all your heart, all the heart and with all the understanding, with all the strength, and to love one's neighbor as yourself is much more than all whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. I'll stop there for, for just a minute. Notice, the scribe agrees with Jesus. He will confess with his mouth that what Jesus said is right. That Jesus is a great teacher, that there's many moral principles in his law. He will even add to it further clarification, which would have been unique for a scribe or Pharisee. He's going to add further clarification, saying, this is greater than all of the sacrifices that we could give. I mean, that would have been unique for a Pharisee to admit, he, he, would have, he would have 
agreed wholeheartedly that this was the weightier command. He would have confessed these things to others around him. He's doing so in a crowd. This scribe, I mean, he is, he is confessing these things. And what does Jesus say to this man? You are not far from the kingdom of God. Now, wait a minute. My grandfather always taught me that close only counts in horseshoes and hand grenades. It does not count in the kingdom of God. Close, coming close to the kingdom of God is not sufficient for God's righteous law. There will be no one that gets to heaven and says, I almost obeyed all your laws. I, I came this close, Jesus. There was that one time my mom, she smarted off to me and I just couldn't resist. But other than that, I'm good. There's not going to be there's not going to be that. He understands the concept. He understands the demand on his life. He 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 gets it, but Jesus says, "Hey, you're not far. Keep going. You're close. Keep going." But the question still remains, did he apply it? Did he recognize that he could not fulfill these righteous requirements without the love of God shed in his heart? Did he recognize that though Jesus may be a good teacher, he could not fulfill the law that was put before him and he needed Jesus as Savior? Did he recognize who he was standing in front of? The words that he was confessing, did he recognize their, their meaning and their declaration for, their, for his heart? It says, interesting commentary after that. And after that, no one dared to ask him any more questions. You know what? I, I, think, I think some of them got it. I think some of them got it. You know what? Jesus know what he's, knows what he's talking about, and I can't measure up to that. I can't come close to that. You and I cannot fulfill this requirement. You cannot love God the way you're supposed to. You cannot love this city the way you're supposed to unless our Savior redeems us from our sin. Unless Christ redeems us from the sin of making everything about us, we cannot fulfill this command. Unless he transforms our hearts and puts the love of Christ in us. That is why John says, we love him because he first loved us. We can't do it. You and I can't go and want to love Jesus enough. This scribe couldn't want to love Jesus enough. He needed his heart transformed. There are many here today that would confess what Jesus said is true. There would be many here today that would go out and share this with other people. There would be many here today who would say, this is God's word. They would say all of those things. But have they trusted in Christ as Savior? Have they come to the point in their life to realize that they cannot live all that God has called them to without Christ saving them from their sin? Have they repented of their selfish love, their pride, their arrogance? Have they re repented of their inconsistent love? Have they repented from their superficial love? Loving the people of this city the way we have been loved by Christ is undoable apart from experiencing the love of Christ. The Christ who died for us while we were yet his enemies. 
We are at war with him, and he died for us. Can we love those around us this way unless we have experienced Christ's love for us? We may be willing to reach out to those things that we love in a city, but are we willing to reach out to those who are broken in our city and love them because of nothing else other than the fact that Christ loved us? How are you going to respond to Christ's declaration today? Are you merely interested in learning the truth but not applying it? Are you close to the kingdom of God without entering it? Are you, how close have you come? I beg of you, don't stand outside the door that Christ is saying, enter, come in, be my family, be my child, experience my love. Don't stand outside the door and say, yeah, I'm just not, that means I got to give up me. I got to die to self and, and, and take up my cross and follow you. I'm just not ready for that. You got great teaching. I'm just not ready to follow you, Christ and the will of my life. As we look at this, we need to understand that we cannot do this, but when we do repent and believe, when we do have the love of Christ in our hearts, we can radically say we love our city because we love our God. That is what I pray is your answer when people ask you, what does that mean? You can explain to them, I love this city because I love our God. And you can explain to them how they too can experience a radical love of God in their life that can transform the way they love the city too. With that in mind, bow with me in prayer.